Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Са два гора подъезд известны под названием Черный ход в том подъезде как в поместье. Greetings listeners, welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Kevin Rothrock and I'll be your host today. Every podcast I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode I spoke with Richard Sock about his new book, The Crisis of Russian Democracy: The Dual State, Factionalism and the Medvedev Succession. Sokka's book comes at a moment in Russian political history when uncertainty is once again in the headlines and on the lips of experts and journalists. While Sokka's book is principally about how Dmitry Medvedev became Russia's third president, the crisis of Russian democracy is more importantly an analysis of the institutions and dynamics that animate Russian politics today. Rejecting typologies of democracy with adjectives, as Sokka calls it, like semi-authoritarian democracy or sovereign democracy or transitional democracy, he identifies competing institutions in Russia, the dual state, and studies them dynamically in order to document the interaction of various social and political forces. Sokka's concept of the dual state describes the permanent struggle and imbalance between Russia's administrative regime and its constitutional state apparatus. Rooted firmly in the nitty-gritty details of criminology and intrigue, Sokka's methodology also allows him to explore the role that ideological norms play in Moscow high politics. The result is a fascinating medley of perspective, one that any scholar of Russia cannot help but find appealing. For more of this discussion, here's my interview with Richard Sakwa. We're joined today by Professor Richard Sakwa, renowned Russian expert and, among many impressive things, Associate Fellow of the Russian and Eurasia Program at the Royal Institute of International Affairs and Professor of Russian and European Politics at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. Professor Sakwa has been publishing research about the Soviet Union and now Russia for more than two decades, and today he has joined us to discuss his 2011 book, The Crisis of Russian Democracy, The Dual State, Factionalism, and the Medvedev Succession, from Cambridge University Press. Professor White, I'm sorry, Professor Sakwa, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, now, before we dive into your book, I wonder if you wouldn't tell our listeners a bit about your background, uh, where, where you were born and raised, and how, or perhaps why, did you come to study Russia professionally? Mm. Yes, no, the family is uh, basically from the Polish emigration. Uh, my father was uh, a Polish reservist uh, during the war, just at the beginning of the war in 1939. And uh, as uh, you know, after many adventures, he ended up with uh, the Polish Second Corps, with General Anders, uh, in, uh, in Egypt and fought with the British Eighth Army in the famous battles uh, Tobruk, El Alamein, Benghazi, and then up to Monte Cassino, and was hoping to return to Poland in 1944-45. But, of course, by then, uh, the German occupation had given way to a Soviet um, occupation. And so uh, he went back to Egypt and basically cutting a long story short. Uh, he, like thousands of other Polish officers and soldiers, ended up um, in emigration, ended up as a refugee in Britain. Uh, the Polish Nationality Act of 1948 allowed Poles to live and uh, have full civic and human rights uh, within Britain without actually taking British citizenship. Yeah. And uh, I was born in that time. And so clearly, uh, this was a whole generation waiting to go back to the motherland, um, to Poland in this case. And uh, we used to, at home, um, in by then living uh, in Norfolk, uh, a county in the east of England, uh, we would get, for example, uh, journals were sent, uh, um, you know, Life of Warsaw uh, in the 50s, 60s, and later with uh, still um, in the way that the distinctive smell of socialism almost, where these journals would come and uh, it was one of my jobs as a small boy to uh, take a sharp knife and to cut the papers because uh, in those days, journals uh, weren't able, didn't come, you know, with pages which you could turn. You actually had to cut them. Oh. And so I would then look at the pictures of uh, Warsaw being rebuilt. The destruction, as you know, was incomplete after the Warsaw uprising. And so it was always the question which uh, concerned me is, why did I end up, because my first language is Polish, the question was always, why did we end up in England? What are we doing here? 
And uh, that was a geopolitical, if you like, a political uh, or a personal issue. Right. And also, of course, the other angle was always, what was the nature of this system? Because uh, the Soviet relationship with Poland in the years of the Polish uh, People's Republic was not simply one of occupation, because uh, these uh, this, uh, these occupying forces were rebuilding um, Warsaw. They were developing. They were building Nowohuta. They were, you know, building housing and uh, achieving huge social mobility. Peasants moving to towns. Uh, within towns, workers becoming uh, uh, officials going up the social ladder, officials becoming communist party bosses. So this was a very peculiar system. I mean, it wasn't simply empire. In many ways, Poland benefited uh, from this relationship with the Soviet Union. For the first time in history, it had safe, defensible borders. It wasn't in danger of being attacked by anybody. But obviously, it had lost uh, a certain degree of sovereignty and it had lost a certain degree of political liberty, uh, which was a price to pay. But clearly, it was... uh, uh, it couldn't just simply be called an exploitative uh, relationship towards the end. Of course, it wasn't clear who was exploiting whom uh, with cheap energy uh, and other goods from the Soviet Union. And certainly, the Soviet Union had exported ex-security above all, of a peculiar sort, of course. So these were the sort of issues, both in terms of geopolitical and in ideological terms, which uh, exercised me for many, many years. Uh, I studied history at the London School of Economics, and uh, that was one of those issues. And then after that, um, more specifically, I, I entered the PhD program at the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Birmingham, where I was in a la- had the opportunity uh, to explore these questions in greater depth. I see. Okay. And, and I'm curious, why, why go into, say, Russian studies as opposed to you know, Polish studies now? Or was that just the nature of, of Soviet studies back back when there was a Soviet Union? In part, uh, that's what it was because uh, my brother, my oldest brother, um, did take up Polish studies. So imagine he was equally <laughs> exercised with his question. Uh-huh. So we divided the world. He took Poland. <laughs> and I said, uh, you take Poland and right. I'll take the Soviet Union. Very and nice. so a division of labor. Right. But yeah. I must say, I was always more interested in the Soviet Union. For some, I don't know why, but it always was a... Uh, and it, uh, to this day, even a, in a sense, because it was the source of the occupation. Poland, in a sense, uh, obviously very interesting in its own way, but it was a uh, not the core of the system. Right. So I was fascinated by the core okay. and what the logic of which established the Soviet Union as a peculiar uh, ideological and military uh, and economic system. Okay, all right. Well, the the first thing I'd like to ask you about the book is uh, how do you intend for it to be read? Who's, who's your imagined audience? And also, uh, what prompted you to write a book about Medvedev's succession, knowing that it would be published at, as his presidential term was coming to an end, at least the, the first one and the only one so far? Mm. That, of course, I didn't quite know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, if I may, a secret on this book. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, it, and I called it, I used to call it The Accidental Book. Okay. Because uh, I always like to feel, uh, you know, not to be too tied by particular plans and so on. So right. what seizes my interest and enthusiasm at a particular time, mm-hmm. I, I, I just uh, because the book previous to that was the Yukos book, right. uh, a book about the Yukos affair, Khodorkovsky. Mm-hmm. And so while doing this book, I was uh, focusing on the Yukos book, but the uh, events of 2007, as we came up to that election cycle, mm-hmm. parliamentary elections in December, presidential elections in March 2008. Mm-hmm. It was just so fascinating because the tensions under within the system became obvious, became right. to the surface. It was more than just, even I do use the analogy of dogs fighting under the carpet. Um, Churchill's alleged statement that mm-hmm. I tried to find it and I couldn't. Um, but as I say in the book, there's a footnote on that, which right. is fascinating. I asked all the experts. But this was an accidental book because it was just so fascinating. And the book almost wrote itself mm-hmm. in the sense that various chapters, various sections, um, as I was working and just trying to get a sense of things, would be writing away. Uh, for example, on uh, on succession issues in Russian politics over the years, which mm-hmm. are fascinating all the way back to the year 1019, mm-hmm. after the death of... Um, of of Vladimir and so on, uh, that succession has always been a peculiar issue in Russian imperial and even then in Soviet history and, of course, now to this day. Mm-hmm. The fact is the ways of shifting from one leader to the next. And more than that, it was just showed again the inner tensions and inner dynamics 
off uh, Russian politics today. Uh, and this is when more and more, and at the core of this book, was this model of the dual state, that ultimately it's, uh, the, you know, and again, there's all sorts of questions. I mean, one of them, uh, I'll go back to the dual state, is to say that I was very dissatisfied with the way that most of the writing about contemporary Russian politics takes place mm-hmm. within a rather formal framework. You know, I'm in favor. I actually think that translogical uh, comparative democratization approaches have a lot to say to us. Mm-hmm. But um, too often, these uh, models are not dynamic. They talk about hybrid system, but they tend to be typological with endless um, democracy with adjectives, right. as as people say, delegative democracy, or mm-hmm. electoral democracy, a whole stack of them, which are typological, I call them, or quite simply teleological, that is almost a sense of we know where we're going. Mm-hmm. And of course, we don't have a clue where we're going when mm-hmm. it comes to Russia. And Russia, least of all, knows where it's going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried to get uh, to develop, and this is the key part, ultimate, the key, key methodological element about the book, is to get a dynamic model. That is to look at this, the genuine social forces, political forces, institutions, which are actually interacting with each other, indeed ideology, which are interacting with each other to say that, uh, to, to examine really what is going on, and not simply to just think that the job is done by simply give, putting it into a box, a category, that it's a, it's a semi-authoritarian system or whatever. Um, that it's actually far more dynamic because it's got it's all of these things at the same time. Right. And this is where the second point is key. There's a dynamic model, but the dual state, again, allowed me to say the fundamental tension is between the institutions, the constitution of 1993, which is a decent constitution. I know many people criticize it, and there's plenty of things to criticize about it. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it works. Over 20 years, people have committed themselves to it. There's plenty of good lawyers and constitutional court judges and others who work genuinely within its framework. Uh, that there are, that you know, the Constitution itself does have defined political weight. That even Putin, the fact, and this was fascinating, that Putin himself uh, left after two terms in 2008 mm-hmm. because of the Constitution, which shows at least a certain, I mean, there are other reasons involved. He didn't want to become associated with the Belarus or Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or what have you. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I think it was a sense that, yes, this is the constitution. He could have changed it, but he actually stuck to it. And that, I give him huge uh, credit for that at that time. Mm-hmm. So the constitutional state on the one side, yet this administrative system on the other side, which is genuine. It developed under Yeltsin. Uh, my first article on the subject was in 1996. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite clear that uh, 1996 came out in 1997, where you actually had this duality that the system, the regime, the vlast, if you like, as we call it, uh, vlast, the authorities were subverting suborning and undermining the letter of the Constitution, though never repudiating uh, it uh, outright. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this dynamic model between these two basic subsystems within Russia today, the the constitutional state, which has weight, you know, has work, uh, does uh, act as a constraint and as a shaper of political action, Mm -hmm. and then the other side, the, the the administrative system, which today more and more was, includes the security forces, which really allow themselves more and more liberties. It was quite clear uh, in the book, the episode with Cherkesov and others, mm-hmm. that it still then considered itself a knighthood. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, so the the two pillars of, of Russian politics, you know, what what make up what you did, what you call the dual state? Like you said, it's this it's this uh, constitutional state on one side, and then it's this administrative regime on the other. Now. Um, there's all now that the president or the, the the Kremlin is 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 not actually in one of those camps. He he is is sort of maneuvering between them, right? Now, how 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 exactly does is the interplay working here? Because it's it, there is a dual state, but there's a sort of super state uh, authority, right? And he's 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 utilizing this this dichotomy for his own benefit. Yes, no, that's that's a very difficult question to answer because I constantly trying to 
envisages. What I was trying to do is certainly to avoid simply saying that the presidency is head of the, this administrative system, because it's not uh, under, under Putin, and even more under Medvedev, because um, the whole point about Medvedev was that he was appealing to the norms of the Constitution, to international law, and so on. So the presidency itself is in part a hostage to this duality uh, and caught between it. And, of course, this is how, under Putin and indeed under Medvedev, to some degree, they maintain their independence by not being captured by any wing of the dual state or even by any of the factions, the liberals, the Siloviki, the security people, um, uh, the regional bosses. So the presidency in the Kremlin itself, and, of course, with the White House, the seat of the government, the prime minister with Putin, has well, Putin occupied that for the last four years. Um, maintains itself, as it were, as a balancing force. This, uh, on the one side, has a positive, because it allows a certain amount of independence, uh, independence in policy-making. The, the state or the vlast has not simply been captured by any particular interest group or faction. On the other side, it's led, and more and more, uh, I'm arguing this, and it isn't quite so strong in the book, it leads to some sort of stalemate and a dead end. Um, so, um, but uh, you're absolutely right. The key point is is that the presidency isn't simply an instrument of one or the other, mm-hmm. but it keep, maintains itself by balancing between the two. Mm-hmm. And and the, now the 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 administrative regime that that's made up of, of what we might call political actors. I mean, that's where you have the factions and you have the the, the you know the the bodies of state. Now the the constitutional state is that. Can we consider that? A group of actors, or is it more of a kind of is it an abstraction um, that that is sort of utilized by the various factions, or how how can we how can we sort of visualize or understand what the constitutional mm. state is? Yeah, indeed. So uh, the as you say, politically administrative system has got a whole series of factions and these sort of quasi political actors, paga political actors. The constitutional state is more based on institutions mm. and the norms which they represent. So I stress that. Uh, it's because it's, it is the institution. We're talking about the Supreme Court, the uh, Constitutional Court, the Arbitrage Court, the Commercial Court, that is. Um, also, institutions like elections, because you know, it would be easy simply to uh, say that these elections were fiddled, fraudulent, and so on. Of course, there's an element of that. But the fact is that the system, every four years, had this nervous breakdown right. as it comes up to these elections, because they realized they couldn't just simply fiddle them. Lots of fiddling going on. They couldn't simply fiddle it. It's more than that. Um, and at the same time, they have to have to go through with it because uh, now, I mean, they've lengthened the terms, but they have to go through with it. And it provides a sort of a collective nervous breakdown for the whole system, for the whole year that leads up to it. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a genuine institution. It's a constraint. Also, uh, the constitutional state isn't just domestic. It's also uh, insofar as the Russian constitution uh, claims and uh, I, I, and it has huge effect. I mean, Russia is a member of the Council of Europe, and therefore the European Court of Human Rights mm-hmm. is a profound effect. It's you know led to the abolition of the death penalty. It hasn't quite formally. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the effective abolition of the death penalty, mm-hmm. and many many other things uh, that justice can be sought if it cannot be found within the country. Then you go to Strasbourg to try to find it. And there's other elements. It's even I've spoken to judges and so on who are genuinely trying to fulfill and work within the grounds. I mean, there's four million cases a year, court cases a year. The vast majority of them in Russia are normal. Unfortunately, in political cases, as we know, best money justice, uh, as we know in a Eucharist affair, that uh, these... uh, that the courts are suborned uh, and subordinated. And indeed, uh, I mean, I'll talk a bit later about the next project, but um, it's, it's just far too much uh, of the, the court. And this is a great devastating legacy of the Putin years, uh, have and have not been able to assert genuinely and universally their independence. Mm-hmm. And that is a catastrophic condition uh, for Russia to be in. And that has that has consequences beyond, I imagine, just the instances when there actually is interference in a sort of politicized case. It probably has reverberations. Huge knock-on effect. Right, yeah. right, right. Okay. Yeah. The signal to all the others that you can get away with that. Right. Yeah. No, it's uh, awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, in the book, you describe Medvedev as leading resistance uh, to the administrative regime on behalf of, of this 
this uh, more genuine constitutionalism, these these norms and so on. But to what degree did or, or does Medvedev represent his own factions in the regime, or what what did he did he did he sort of did he gradually become more like the administrative regime by being president? Did he, did that was that a, a sort of necessity that that corrupted the project, or was he able to actually uh, remain above the fray, so to speak, as as Putin sort of you know uh, ideally uh, uh, tries to be? Mm. Yeah, he he was uh, always constrained, and the tandem uh, is a reflection of. Russian politics more broadly, and that is its refusal to define. And the, the key thing about the tandem was is that you never quite knew what was what. Right. And this is why people got terribly frustrated with Medvedev, because he was playing everything. He himself got confused, of course, because I think that he came, and uh, it, it was shown in later actions, a genuine commitment mm-hmm. to strengthening the constitutional state, that is, against legal nihilism, which was his big slogan right at right. the beginning. Um, and uh, he genuinely wanted to do it. He strengthened the presidential council on human rights and what have you. Unfortunately, he was constrained. It wasn't even so much tandem, but it was by Putin's personal ambition, which I think were he about two years ago, he um, became quite clear that he wanted to come back. He didn't tell Medvedev uh, the statement that it was all agreed four years ago, I think is false. Everybody I've spoken to says it's false. Uh, of course, it was one of the options for Putin to come back, obviously, and possibly even the number one option, but it was not decided. And uh, even in the last two years, I mean, I've seen Medvedev at close up at the Yaroslavl Forum when he brought the great and the good and myself uh, along to discuss the quality of democracy. Uh, and uh, where he made these very strong speeches, and it wasn't just a speech. I mean, he, I, I think he believed it, uh, and he wanted to do it. And uh, it isn't just me. People like Gleb Pavlovsky and Igor Jurgens and Evgeny Gontmacher and others were quite clear that not only should uh, Medvedev come back because Putin's return would probably not be a good idea, least of all for himself, um, and that uh, he should, and that he could come back. And it was a possibility. The decision for Putin to come back seems to have been taken last May, May 2011. Uh, and then after that, put, uh, Medvedev was deflated. Um, and he wasn't the same Medvedev, uh, really. Uh, after that, we expected a big speech in the St. Petersburg Economic Forum, and it was a whimper speech in Kolkova and so on. So it was uh, quite clear that so Medvedev, Funnily enough, everybody called him a political corpse after the uh, castling move on the 24th of September 2011. Right. However, when we had the mass movement, the mass, uh, um, po- mass demonstrations against the falsification in the December election, right. you could, Medvedev was almost beaming because it justified everything he'd been saying. Mm-hmm. And it gave him a second wind, a second political life. And so Medvedev very cleverly put himself effectively at the head of the popular movement for genuine free elections, for independent courts, to clean up the system and so on. Mm-hmm. So Medvedev as prime minister, uh, the, the, the tandem continues now in a new form still with unclear rules of the game, but the game is not yet over by any, by long chalk. And so that model of the dual state outlined before, uh, in a sense, the tensions continue with the presidency, parliament, the indeterminacy, all of the the funny games going on Mm -hmm. between and beyond the constitution. And Medvedev, you'd say, is still pushing uh, uh, for these sort of constitutional norms as opposed to falling in with the administrative regime? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, his position now, uh, well, paradoxically, in institutional terms, terms, of course, far weaker because he's right. now uh, not the president. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, in political terms, this, uh, he is stronger as long as the popular movement can continue. Mm-hmm. I don't think it will, unfortunately, because having spoken to come back from Moscow and so on, mm-hmm. um, that I kept saying to him, you've got to establish a popular democratic front to defend constitutional state. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I didn't quite use those words, but effectively that. Lots of people agreed with me, but they said it can't be done. But I said it's the only way to, because... The systems never like to give uh, freedom and justice from above, mm. um, just like U.S. human um, civil rights movement. You had to have a mass movement, a big movement from below, a big push from below for the U.S. even to fulfill the promise of its own constitution. Mm. And uh, similarly, in Russia, you have to have uh, um, a push from below uh, constantly within the norms of the constitution. And uh, so I also warn the leaders of this protest movement, it's no good making unconstitutional demands. Mm. 
uh, the demand should be for the Constitution to be fulfilled. Right. Okay. Well, to bring it back to the book, a key moment seems to be one of Putin's early experiences with uh, Gazprom uh, when they take an independent political stance in 1989 by supporting Lushkov and Primakov uh, when, when Putin is, is becoming prime minister and then president. Um, now, you identify this as a key reason that Putin turns to building up state officials' presence in major companies, which then contributes eventually to the Yukos affair, which aggravates the depolitization of the public sphere. Now, how exactly does state corporatism fit into the dual state, and why was the Yukos affair such an important moment in, in the story of, of Putin bringing that about, or bring, making it stronger, let's say? Yes. Well, I have to say that... Uh in all of this, that Putin, I mean, has a type of vision of the developmental state. Mm-hmm. So, you, you, I mean, whether it's called state corporatism, it certainly is. Is that Putin does not like independent political actors. So, what he spent the ten years or above all of his power doing is making sure that no one could invade the privileges of this administrative system, which he himself keeps it subordinate uh, uh, action to himself. Um, couldn't challenge this like they did in 99 with Kumakov and Lushkov with the financial muscle power of Gazprom and some others. So um, he, and of course, when Hodorkovsky and Yukos was challenging this precisely, um, uh, this return to 1999 in 2003, um, he, uh, you know, moved decisively uh, to, to stop it. And since then, after that, you have, it, it isn't even state corporatism as such. It's a system in which people, the, the corporations can get on and do it. Yes, they will build up national champions. That is, industries that would otherwise tend to disappear, like shipbuilding, uh, like aircraft building, to leave the world just Boeing and Airbus industries uh, dominant. But Russia still has a vision of itself as a player in all of these actors. So this is what, you know, again, one of those dualities which pervades contemporary Russian politics, because Putin does have this developmental vision. It's a rather old-fashioned one. It's an industrial policy. It's a French one of the 1950s and 1960s, Dirigism and the like. Um, so it isn't quite state corporatism, but it's you know, within that sort of, towards that end. At the same time, while he's developing uh, this model, uh, the other side of that duality is the intense, well, the conflict of interest by putting on state officials uh, onto the board. But this, this conflict of interest, which uh, elsewhere spills over into a prevalent corruption. <laughs> so in a strange sort of way, I'm now beginning to say that the balance to all of this is, and I don't quite know what what word to use to describe it, mm-hmm. but some, I mean, I'm beginning to think in terms of the third state, a, a deep state. In other words, that the deep corruption which has emerged to balance this developmental dynamism mm-hmm. or developmental impetus, to put it uh, that way, uh, there is this element which is absolutely undermining entrepreneurship and business development, apart from the big corporations, which themselves are led by the uh, cowed and tamed oligarchs who don't dare to exercise critical power on their own, mm-hmm. apart from Mikhail Prokhorov. But even Prokhorov, uh, in these last elections, uh, somebody told me, in fact, I won't name whom, said that when uh, Prokhorov was standing in the elections, he went to see Putin and said, how far can I criticize you and assistant? Right. And Putin, as a sign of his political genius, said, you decide for yourself. <laughs> in other words, that self-limitation. Uh-huh. Brilliant. He's a, we should never underestimate Putin's genius and uh-huh. political uh, noose on these occasions. Right. But what he failed to understand is that uh, this system has bred a deep corruption. Even just now, one of the meetings I had earlier today, somebody was telling me about a small business, well, quite a successful business, um, which uh, was making a lot of money, employing several hundred people. And of course, then the security forces, the police came along and said, you know, give us a very, it was very large, very large, uh, 20 million rubles. Um, And he refused. And uh, they then uh, took away his business, perfectly legally, using the courts, Mm -hmm. um, which is where I'm developing work on that later. But this is what goes on all the time, that Politi- that even political pressure, political cover, no longer can protect you. Mm-hmm. 
That's yeah. an extraordinary degeneration of uh, of economic entrepreneurship, but of course of governance entirely because of the the undermining, the corrosion of the modern institute. So the undermining, indeed, of the constitutional state and its institutions. So I still believe. I mean, people say to me in a, when you talk about the crisis of the Rus- of Russian democracy, mm-hmm. I'm attacked on both sides. Those who say you know, uh, what democracy, <laughs> and those who then say, what crisis. Uh, there's fewer and fewer of those now, one has to say. Right. Uh, but what democracy, and uh, 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 it's coming, indeed, each year that passes, unless, uh, because, uh, yeah, to go back to Medvedev's point, that he, unfortunately, was unable to deliver on his promises of strengthening the constitutional state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a tragedy, that because Putin vetoed it, stymied it, and blocked it at every opportunity, uh, which was catastrophic. I think, above all, most catastrophic for Putin himself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, a, a bit of a side question here. This caught my, my eye as an American reader. What's the significance of Putin's regular allusions to FDR and to America, comparing the Russia yeah. today to America during the Depression or World War II? Mm. Yeah. No, that's an interesting question. Um, of course, uh, FDR was uh, very much attacked, as we know, uh, even by the courts in, in the 1930s. Um, it was obviously FDR got huge respect in Russia because of his role in the Second World War and the alliance with uh, with Stalin uh, against Nazi Germany. But more than that, it's to say that ultimately Putin has a strong vision of leadership. He, he does have a vision of a strong leader, uh, and this is the other contradiction of Putin um, that. It's somebody who has the courage of his convictions, mm-hmm. which, of course, FDR did in the, uh, and also, of course, in particular, dealing with the crisis after the Depression in 1932-33 when he came into office. Uh, the fact that he boldly acted and got enormous amount of criticism and yet was able to uh, shake the country and uh, move it, begin to move it out of uh, depression. Mm-hmm. And so, and with the political courage to do it. So Putin is not afraid of taking unpopular actions. Of course, he's very pragmatic and he's not going to, he's very careful. And that's a good sign of his, what I think is, you know, brilliant leadership. Whether it's effective and good leadership in a profound sense is another issue. But um, he certainly is an very able leader. And so he looks to people like Roosevelt and, of course, now Stolypin, the prime minister between 1906 and 1911, and a number of other leaders, uh, for example, uh, Ludwig Erhardt and Konrad Adenauer, and of course Charles de Gaulle, um, who also um, boldly in 1958 effectively undertook a constitutional coup to establish a fifth uh, French Republic. So FDR is, a, is, a small group, is among the small group of leaders whom Putin genuinely sees as people who are able to change the nature of politics in their societies. Okay. Um, now, to, to move into maybe minutia of the book, I want to know how important do you think someone like Stanislav Bilkovsky is? Um, and what does the compromise campaign that, that he facilitated against Putin in 2007 signify? And if, if that kind of Chorin um, UPR can be tied to someone like Sechin, does that mean that, that, his, that various other initiatives like, like belonging to Bilkovsky or p- people that are potentially connected like him, does that mean that that, that, that the, the Siliviki are potentially working plots to pressure Putin, not just kind of in, a, in, in the public sphere of, of, uh, of Kampramat, but also potentially even organizing, um, uh, you know, the opposition actually in a way that's meant to, to pressure Putin. Like, like Bilkovsky has been involved in Russian nationalism as well. Not just, so it's not just releasing, you know, compromising, uh, uh, you know, facts or, or myths. It's, it's actually mobilizing people on the ground to potentially sort of, behave in a way that would that would change politics. Now, do, do you think that that sort of thing is going on today? I'm sure it is. It's very hard to get to, of course, the measure of it. Bielkowski, right. of course, was one of the people who uh, wrote the article, um, The State and the Oligarchs, which signaled the beginning and gave co- the ideological cover for the attack against Yukos and Hodorkovsky in 2003. So Bielkowski, as you see in the book, I did interview him. I did speak with him. And since then, I've spoken with him. He's, uh, I mean, he's obviously a very, very um, interesting and intelligent man. But as you say, suggest, uh, it's not entirely clear what uh, 
where his ideas and information is coming from. Right. As as uh, specifically the um, about the allegation that Putin is hugely wealthy right. and suddenly to discredit Putin uh, does suggest indeed that even Putin himself, and he's well aware of this, mm. could be the target of uh, his friends because he never gives the Siloviki full dominance, full gain. Mm. He, he always tries to keep them, yes, he balances them against other factions, but obviously they then upset. Uh, I wouldn't even say it's Sechin personally, because Sechin, I think, is very loyal to Putin. But of course, at the same time, I'm sure he wouldn't be averse to uh, putting a bit of discreet pressure on 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 him. So uh, it's and the role of Yelkovkin, other these PR chicky, these. Uh, public relations people, right. is extremely unclear. What suddenly emerges, though, is that somebody like uh, um, Gleb Pavlovsky, who's just written a book mm. on the you know, genius power, my, my genius power, mm. is, again, was beginning to uh, show from the inside how the system worked and the way that they would try to change public consciousness of particular issues mm. by shaping agendas and shaping uh, the immediate coverage of a particular issue. Um, it's now emerging uh, how this is done from inside. Mm. And of course, Zelkovsky was doing it from outside because he's a bitterly disappointed man. Right. Uh, he never actually managed to get anything mm -hmm. out of it, if you like, in any particular status and so on. So he ends up becoming almost a parody of himself, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm afraid is a tragedy of people who get disappointed in right. developing the way they would like to. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, now, you note that, that Putin, near the end of his second term, turned to anti-factional and anti-establishment appointments and public statements. Now, this is, this is a symptom, I suppose, of the need to stay above the fray, the need to balance the constitutional state against the, the whims of the regime. Now, do you expect this to continue in the third term, or has there been some kind of hardening while he's been out of, out of the Kremlin? Mm, yes. Whether, in other words, can Putin remain above the fray, above yeah. the factions, or will he ultimately become captured by one of them because of his weakened position? Or, or maybe that, will uh, he come to personify the regime and then Medvedev will have to personify the, mm, the constitutional state? Is that, is, that, is that a possibility or is that a recipe yes. for disaster? Or is it it's both? both. <laughs> yes. yes. It's, uh, that's exactly it. That uh, Putin could indeed be captured and become ultimately simply a symbolic, uh, symbolic uh, of the endless fiddling and virtual politics of the administrative regime. And then that uh, Medvedev more clearly delineates himself as a defender of the constitutional state, the rule of law, and so on. It would be an epical uh, division if they came out into open conflict. Personally, I think that uh, as long as it remained within the Constitution, I think that if they were openly, if Medvedev had the courage to openly state, which he began to do over the Yukos affair over Libya, to, to uh, openly give his opinion right. and to, to, to make it. In other words, to politicize factional conflict, to allow the emergence of it. I think it's unlikely, by the way, in the, in the short term. Right. I think that Medvedev is, is, and Putin is too careful and too closely bound with each other, because mm -hmm. I think they've both got compliments on each other, <laughs> is that uh, they uh, would, un it was unlikely to do it, but there could be other factional splits. However, as far as Putin is concerned, that he's weathered this political crisis of the elections, um, but he's not clear what he's going to do. So whether he, he, he's well aware, even he started talking about the need to combat corruption. He's well aware of the limitations and the fragility of his own power. And I think he got a bit of a shock in the last few months. Uh, it would be fantastic to see uh, whether he can change. I have, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's excluded, but the political situation he's led himself into, he's allowed this corruption, uh, I've just mentioned the case of the um, police and security forces taking this small business, right. that he is aware of the need for what needs to be done now, but I think he's uh, aware of the lack of instruments mm -hmm. to achieve that. And the only instruments which were there before were the ones that Medvedev controlled. Mm -hmm. That is, the normative space, this commitment to um, free and fair elections, and this is so not Putin's style. 
that this is why I always felt that Medvedev uh, was a, a better person to carry out the strengthening of the constitutional state. Mm-hmm. Paradoxically, in a purely political sense, the tragedy or the interesting moment now is is that Putin has to fulfill Medvedev's agenda. Right. Having pushed Medvedev out from the presidency, mm-hmm. the agenda which Medvedev outlined is the only one that can lead Russia out of its contemporary crisis. Mm-hmm. How conscious do you think um, state actors like Putin or Medvedev or really anybody um, at, at a high level like that, how conscious are they of of their tasks as a sort of as existing in an existential crisis, the way we're kind of talking about it? Or do they look at it more as a series of, of administrative decisions that are sort of routine and need to be made in the best interest of the state after calculations and so on? Or are they? do you think they approach... Um, their their agenda have, you know now they're now they're beginning on new ones having just taken up new positions as is it, is it do they are they looking at their work as mm-hmm. the state is in you know the country is in a state of crisis we we're on the brink we need to kind of look at look at our work in terms of of the dual state or is it for them is it would that be a strange position to take yeah we'll find that out in the next few weeks right. <laughs> whether whether indeed. Um, the, they now, uh, I think they're well aware of the challenges that face them, uh, because they can't have simply rely on high energy rents and so on, uh, in perpetuity. And so, whether they're aware of the economic and other crises that they fail, that they face, um, whether they can now, if you like, de-escalate the rhetoric of the election campaign, right. which Putin, it wasn't Medvedev, talking about danger, uh, the right. da- dangers uh, to the state of external intervention and so on and so forth. Whether he can, if, if you like, to achieve a desecuritization of all of this, uh, to achieve that. However, I think that Medvedev understands intellectually the uh, overwhelming danger of it, but I don't think Putin does. That I think that his articles, which he was coming out of seven um, campaign articles, were absolutely fascinating, um, but they didn't show uh, understand uh, the, the 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 you know the fundamental challenge, which is to strengthen the institutions rather than his personal leadership. Mm-hmm. So the danger is that Putin may try to strengthen the regime, that is, it's the so-called vertical of power, which doesn't really exist, uh, which is a vertical of power. People misunderstand, sometimes think it's a strengthening of the state. It was not. Putin constantly weakened the state, um, uh, and so and it became a power vertical focused on administrative arrangements, whereas the state, of course, is a far more complex thing, which is a combination of institutions and norms, and indeed people's personal loyalty, and so on, whereas the operative code within the administrative regime is greed, venality, uh, personal favors, informality. In the constitutional state, it is the more normal, uh, indeed, senses of patriotism and uh, altruism and all the other elements. Um, and Putin cannot tap into that at the moment, other than in a rather, um, you know, organized, instrumental way. And so this is why I say Putin three at the moment is, uh, is, is, uh, I mean, in one, sometimes I think he's going to, the whole thing is going to end in catastrophe and that the, uh, a personal catastrophe above all. Mm-hmm. And that, um, he, unless he can really change himself, unless, uh, Medvedev can convince him where and what to do in terms of strengthening the rule of law and dependence of the courts and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and so the crisis now, the crisis that, that, that you would identify in, in Russian democracy today, is that that's, that seems to be founded on the the the, the reality and, and maybe more importantly the perception of, of endemic corruption. Now, um, is is the is the evidence of that aside from the the fact that there is this corruption that that can be verified in several ways? Is the is the really is the important thing that that there are these protests now, or is it is there something else? Is it just a, is it I mean is it opinion polls or what 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 are you what are you kind of what are you thinking of when you we talk about the, the crisis facing Putin? Um, yeah. Are we are we are we meant to think about people running out of the streets like they're doing now, but uh, presumably in greater numbers, or is it is it the budget collapsing or, or the bottom falling out, or, or what what do you what would you kind of list mm. as the the factors there? Yeah. So indeed, what are the game changes if 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 one must put it that way? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the demos, I think that they're going to fade away, uh, which I think is a shame. I mean, they. they 
talking to people in Moscow, there's a sense that they're running out of steam anyway. Um, this last one on the 6th um, was something. And the, unfortunately, it wasn't able to establish a permanent institution which could continue pressure from below. Uh, the budget and other issues are important, but I don't think catastrophic. I really don't. I think so. It, it, it is the degeneration of the of governor, governability um, because of the, the ways that these actors now um, are becoming more and more concerned about their own short-term interests. So uh, making money and stashing it abroad, because even those who steal internally no longer have faith in the viability and continuity of the Putin system. Yeah. So even they are now making absolute sure. I mean, the, the $35 billion left Russia in the first quarter of 2012, which uh, is even higher proportionately than last qu- equivalent quarter uh, last year. So it's, uh, it's accelerating. So it's quite clearly that there's uh, the, the degeneration of governance, of, of belief in the future even. So uh, emigration, there's a number of issues. I don't think we should exaggerate it because uh, in, in a sense that the administrative the, or the constitutional state, the government, still works relatively effectively. Mm. That one shouldn't forget that. This is why I've always said that the constitutional state, that the ministers, the ministries, all of that, they're all there. They're all working very increasingly professional uh, civil service uh, with uh, reasonably sensible ministers. I don't condemn them, the cabinet of ministers. So, you know, they've got a, a number of exceptionally talented individuals there, Nabiulin and uh, others, you know, who. Uh, yeah, these are very smart people, and I, uh, even Shuvalov, uh, despite his recent scandals, you know, he's a very effective and competent, and I actually think, ultimately, the honest minister. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, this is why I say it's always that duality, that uh, we should always balance this degenerative capacity with regenerative capacity, which is there within the system, unless it squanders this opportunity, which is, of course, the major danger now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um now, you, you write that one of the greatest accents on Russian democratic decline has been the marginalization pace of the old democratic movement and systemic opposition, uh, which, which has exceeded the creation of new oppositionist centers. Now, is that still true? Or sort of looking, turning back to the protests, not to belabor them, but um, yeah. does that indicate that maybe the, those, the, these older parties are possibly catching up or that they're recovering some kind of past relevance people, parties like Yablaka and, and, uh, and maybe the communists and, and, uh, you know, just Russia, Russia is still kind of in a, in a self identity crisis, I suppose, but they, they some of their deputies are kind of at the forefront of the, at least the street demonstrations. Um, yeah. now is, is that going to, is that going to win them a, a kind of actually a, like a real popular identity or is, is, is it, is it at least possible? Um, is it going to, is it going to, to, to fix that imbalance somewhat? What, what do you think? Mm. It seems almost that this regime or the system, the Vlast, is hell-bent on undermining every source of internal renewal. It alienates its own supporters more than anybody else. The changes to the party system uh, as a result of the protests means that it's going to become exceptionally easy to create a political party. So uh, this could uh, lead to not the old parties like uh, the Communist Party, the Just Russia, as you said, which is uh, did very well in the parliamentary elections. So Mironov, its leader, did very badly in the uh, presidential election. Um, instead of allowing those to develop, and maybe a, few, a handful of other parties, what we're going to now have is hundreds of small parties, including possibly the fragmentation of Just Russia itself right. into its various factions. And I'd, I think United Russia will more or less stay together for the time being, at least. So... Uh, we're going to see, instead of the party system becoming a source of renewal, it'll become, again, a source of fragmentation mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and will be unable to give leadership to the popular movement and indeed to formulate uh, genuine popular programs for the renewal of Russian politics. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, as I say, it's almost like a death wish um, that they've done this for short-term political uh, ambition to undermine the protest movement, to fragment and segment it, uh, and instead of which uh, they could have looked to political parties to um, genuinely support them, because they could have built a coalition of independent political parties. But the administrative regime hates genuinely pol- genuine political conflict. It hates genuinely independent 
political positions and political actors. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, uh, as for the party system, which of course is one of the changes to it, is one of the uh, outcomes of the mass protest. Mm-hmm. It's uh, instead of using that to support change, it's going to be um, using that just simply to the short-term survival of the regime. Mm-hmm. Now, is is the the fact that one of the key elements of the of the party reform, as I understand it, is that there will not be party blocks allowed, and so that is what's going mm-hmm. to that that'll encourage the fragmentation to the point of kind of massive yeah. marginalization. Um, now, do you think that that was that something that Medvedev sponsored, or was it kind of the was the regime poisoning the reform that he proposed? Yeah. I, I think that it was the regime, but uh, Medvedev went along with it. And right. again, that's one of the things which we could say uh, in his, uh, I mean, we, there's plenty of things you could say in his defense, but that's certainly one thing you could say in his uh, in, incrimination for right. going along with, uh, you know, these, these sort of, it's not, it's not even half-hearted, these instrumental short-term reforms, which really ha- are not allowing these reforms to, provide a genuine chance for the renewal of this. However, on the other side, uh, the um, restoration of gubernatorial elections is another aspect which I think does allow an opportunity for renewal. It will allow genuine competition, even though there's municipal filters and there is a a weaker presidential filter. Nevertheless, I think that uh, with uh, with great difficulty, independent politicians will be elected it will certainly liven up uh, regional elections in the Russian political scene mm-hmm. and possibly allow a renewal of political forces from below um, being elected uh, in certain places as governors. So it's, uh, again, as always, there's plenty of action going on, but uh, it shouldn't just simply be dismissed as all cosmetic and no, so on, because the last authorities are not all powerful, all knowing, and plenty of their actions are going to have consequences which they did not anticipate it, did right. not anticipate. So the whole, this uh, attempt to manage reform mm-hmm. could lead to, uh, in fact, genuine reform. Mm-hmm. Now, the, re- the regime sort of getting its way or, get, or succeeding in, in undermining the reforms with, with political parties and, say, a kind of uh, victory or, or limited victory for constitutional norms in the restoration of gubernatorial elections, does that indicate different priorities of these these uh, dualities of the state or is it is that just kind of how the chips fell is it, yeah. are we, or should I, I we think, think that yeah. i mean are, is, is yeah. the, are the constitutional uh, uh, actors are they are they kind of making a priority of taking the fight to the regions and and the regime is sort of settling in the capital i mean are we getting that kind of mm. of uh, is that how the the lines are breaking down what do you what do you think in fact, to some degree, the opposite, because, of oh. course, uh, Putin and Medvedev has lost the cities. Uh-huh. Uh, their right, elections right, right. were very weak, uh, and so they were trying to go to uh, what some people call Russia too, that is the uh, blue-collar workers in the industrial urals and elsewhere. At one moment in the election campaign, it looked almost as if this would be mobilized against the cities, the intelligentsia, the service workers, the IT workers, the iPad generation, and so on. Uh, the in-, in other words, Internet Russia against television Russia, where some people put it. Um, no, but I think that as for these reforms, I think that to a degree it is how the chips fell. It, it, it wasn't, it doesn't, I don't think you can look at it. Uh, yes, there was a lot of pressure to ensure that these gubernatorial elections did at least, uh, weren't quite so uh, filtered as the, uh, or so negative in their possible consequences as the reforms of the party system. Um, it's also, of course, we're talking about possible reforms to the Federation Council, the upper house of the Russian Parliament, the Senate, um, and indeed there's going to be electoral reform, which no one, uh, I asked a few people in Moscow last week, can explain how it is planning to work. This is the division of the country into uh, um, 450 constituencies uh, and so on and so forth. It's absolutely extraordinary um, how, or 250, but how they're planning to um, uh, to, to work it out. Um, it's absolutely extraordinary. No one understands the system. Mm-hmm. And that certainly is an attempt. They're trying to be too clever by half. I see. And so that, I'm sure, will be changed by right, the time right. it comes into law. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, to 
quote a line from from the, the very end of the book, actually before the conclusion, and and sort of ask for for a little bit more about it. Uh, you write that Medvedev was unable to mobilize the normative resources that were potentially available to him to achieve political and legal renewal, and instead he equivocated, uh, generating disappointment and eventually anger. Now, disappointment and, and anger. I, th- I mean, you, you wrote this before. The, all, the, the street protests broke out, but but these are the two sort of emotions that are most associated with with both the, the castling, I think, and the 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 parliamentary elections, and I suppose also the presidential elections, although perhaps to a lesser extent. Now, are you talking about mass? Is it sort of, is this a popular mass disappointment and anger, or is it, does it does it also belong to to other groups or or more narrow groups or or something? Certainly, uh, there is disappointment within the elite. Uh, right. We saw that uh, from late 2010. The sacking of Lushkov was quite an important event, but uh, that uh, he by then was becoming quite a critic, though um, um, after his dismissal, obviously far stronger. Uh, at the same time, Kudrin, a minister of finance at the beginning of 2011, was quite clearly outlining an alternative. Jürgens, I've mentioned before, and so on. So they were disappointed. As for the anger, there is a, uh, an intense frustration, and I was picking this up, even at the congresses of well, Yaroslav, this uh, meeting which was headed by uh, Medvedev, and even you know, meeting and talking with United Russia members and even loyalists to the system. They themselves were getting disappointed by simply saying that this tandem, the un- and lack of definition of really what it was all about. It was just, uh, indeed, um, these fine words weren't being uh, translated into effective actions. Mm-hmm. So it was building up. So while these uh, protests, as you say, were very important from the end of 2011, mm-hmm. there, was, there were already signs, for example, over the, uh, the Himki Forest motorway building in a protest. Right. There. And there were the Blue Bucket movement in a sure. drug before that. And so there was it's been building up for some time mm-hmm. that this isn't even just from the monetization of benefit protests in 2005, right. but after 2007-8, a sense that even then, stagnation, tendencies, disappointment, mm-hmm. and indeed anger was building up, and it exploded uh, in 2011-12. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're grateful for your time today, and I know we need to let you go, but perhaps before we do that, you could tell our listeners a bit about what you're working on at the moment. I'm... Uh, well, there's two things. I was planning to work on what I uh, hinted at before, mm-hmm. and that is to examine in some depth the ways that this third state has been developing, or the uh, the corrupt state. This is uh, and focusing on the concept of raidists, raiding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ukos, of course, was a massive raid of the state against this independent business. But this uh, phenomenon, which uh, uh, takes place all the time, where we end up today with one eighth of small of business people in Russia have had legal action taken against them by the authorities. Mm-hmm. In most cases, uh, unjustified. One eighth um, of the entrepreneurs, or of yes, one eighth. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. We're talking of tens of thousands right, right. of business people are in jail. Mm-hmm. That they've lost their business and lost their liberty. Right. This is absolutely amazing and a phenomenon which I would like to study. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that the, the courts, even when the courts take away, I mentioned this business earlier in which uh, the police came to this business and said, give us 20 million rubles. The businessman refused and the, they then said, well, we're going to take your business away. Right. They did. They did it perfectly legally. Well, mm-hmm. illegally, legally. They took it to the court. Mm-hmm. The judge knew that the decision was unjust, yet passed it because he was under huge pressure and passed a court decision which transferred the ownership of this business to uh, the people who were seizing it, raiding it. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, the Magnitsky case, the uh, hermitage capital, is one of the most signal events uh, of that sort. Right. So that's what I was going to look at. However, just again, like, uh, like this book, The Crisis of Russian Democracy, was an accidental, though when I say accidental, mm-hmm. I think it actually reflects a very deep Zekonomianist, uh, or how can I put it, deep logic of the situation. Mm-hmm. I'm doing another sort of accidental book, and that is one which I'm very enthusiastic to do, mm-hmm. and that is going to look at Putin, the Putin phenomenon today, mm-hmm. and it's going to be called the, con- the Putin and the Politics of Contradiction, mm-hmm. and it's Good going time. to uh, not cover the earlier years of Putin, which maybe just briefly, but it's going to look at uh, 
take the story on from the crisis of Russian democracy 2007-8, look in some depth at the failures and achievements of the Medvedev years, at least in setting an agenda, and then to examine how the Putin presidency will fail. Because I feeling that it will fail in one form or another, or certainly uh, unless it transforms itself, it's going to uh, going to end rather badly. And so I want to, uh, well, even if it doesn't, uh, it's only to examine what led Putin to come back, what forces, in other words, to continue the crisis of Russian democracy, right. uh, but now focusing on um, the Putin leadership. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us here today, and, and I wish you the best of luck with those two projects it sounds like like at the, at the pace you're going there might be there might be four that emerge who knows but uh, i hope i hope they're all as wonderful as the crisis of Russian democracy thank you very much thank you very much i've been speaking with richard sokla about his book the crisis of russian democracy the dual state factionalism and the Medvedev succession i hope you enjoyed the interview once again i'm kevin rothrock your host for new books in russian and eurasian studies if you're interested in hearing more interviews by the new books network please go to newbooksnetwork.com and be sure to tune in again for future interviews by me and my co-host sean gillery many thanks for listening until next time